When I was in high school, I sat at a table with uh, the, a bunch of buddies, and we used to joke about our table because it was like the beginning of a bad joke. My friend Anil was a Hindu, my friend Phnom was a Buddhist, I was a Christian, and my friend Ben was a Jew, and it just sounded like we were about to start a really bad joke about the, all of us going into a bar together. And uh, we didn't talk about religion very much. Every once in a while it kind of came up because we all knew that it, we, you know, we all represented all these different faiths sitting at the table every day having lunch together. And we were good buddies. And, um, but we did have one thing in common, though, even though our belief systems were very varied. And the one thing that we had in common was that none of us at that point in our lives found really any fulfillment in our faith, myself included. See, Anil and, and Phnom never went to the temples, Ben never went to the synagogue, and I went to church because I had to, and I slept in as much as possible to even minimize that. And if you asked me at that point in my life, um, you know, if I believed in Jesus, my answer would be yes, no doubt I did. If I believed in the resurrection, I'd say yes, no doubt I did. If you asked me if I believed that Jesus forgave my sin, I would say yes, no doubt he did. But if you asked me if Jesus fulfilled me, uh, no, Jesus forgave me, but Jesus didn't really fulfill me. We're going to start a series, a four-week series through November, on the letter of, to the Colossians. And Paul writes this letter to the Colossians because there, he had a concern for them. And the concern that he had was that they, they, there was a teaching that was kind of working its way into the church. Paul was concerned about it. And the teaching was, yeah, Jesus can forgive you, that's fine, but he probably won't fulfill you. So you come to Jesus for forgiveness, but you have to go somewhere else for fulfillment. The, the idea that, that, that was going around in Colossus at the time, and we're really going to get into this more next week, but anyways, just for us to get a picture before we read this text. It wasn't asking the church to deny Christ, but it was diverting their trust so that they were dethroning Christ, which ultimately worked out to the, to the same end. And so um, this philosophy, which really kind of comes out in, in chapter 2, was kind of a catching the attention of the church. Paul never planted this church in Coloss. This was a little house church. It was probably smaller than this, definitely smaller than this group in this room. So the Holy Spirit providentially gives a mega message to a mini church to rescue their hearts out of this kind of diverse ideas where they're not really going to get fulfillment in Jesus. And here we get to benefit from it today. So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at this because that's Paul's whole aim. Paul's whole aim in the letter of Colossians is to say to these guys who are going out into these kind of mystical, philosophical ideas about what's going to really fulfill my heart and give me a sense of identity or quench the craving of my soul. And Paul's whole aim is to say, everything that you are looking for, whether it be a philosophical inquiry or discussion about your value or sense of meaning, um, that is found in Christ alone. This morning's reading is from Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 13 to 23. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. Now the one who is the great architect of the soul is the one who ultimately fulfills the soul. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. Jesus is both the one who forgives your sin, but ultimately forgives fulfills your soul because you were created by him and through him and for him. So Paul's whole goal here is to trumpet the supremacy of Christ. And and the reason that he's trumpeting the supremacy of Christ, the reason he starts Colossians with this uh, strong language that we just read about Christ being amazing and preeminent and above all things, Paul's not just trying to capture the Colossians' attention by saying, hey, I'm going I'm to talk about Jesus like he's a really big deal. You have ideas? Well, I have ideas too. Here are mine. That's not what he's doing. The reason why Paul starts here, and we're going to break this text down so you can see it, is Paul's actually going back to something that happened in history 20 years earlier. 20 years before Paul wrote this was the death and the resurrection of Christ. 33 AD, under Pontius Pilate, Jesus Christ suffers and dies on a Roman cross like a common criminal. Three days later, that tomb is empty. That tomb was guarded by the Roman centurions. Rome put their seal on the tomb. It's empty. Rome and the religious leaders who crucified Jesus get together to start this polemic, which is like a big story to say they stole the body. They're running around trying to say that they stole the body. And the whole world is turning upside down. This is just 20 years earlier. So everybody who's there has, has heard about what had occurred 20 years earlier, because none of this stuff happened in a corner. And so Paul's whole goal is to say, I'm going to point back to something that happened in history. I'm not just going to battle your ideas with my own ideas and, you know, see who seemed to, you know, give you the most warm fuzzies inside. So Paul is saying, if a man claims to be God, and then he dies, and then he resurrects, and then 500 people see him, which they did, And he walks around as a resurrected one who came back from the grave for 40 days, which Jesus did before his ascension. If that happens, then that should catch our attention. There should be some implications to that that we just can't ignore. And so Paul is saying that essentially, in the words of C.S. Lewis, Jesus was either a lunatic or a liar or he was Lord. And if he raised from the dead, then he's Lord. And there's no room for us to say, well, I'm not sure if Jesus was was, uh, you know, a lunatic or a liar, that's strong, maybe he was just a nice guy, maybe he was like an ancient hippie that just kind of went around, was like, hey, let's all just love each other. Okay, well, you know, those aspects of Jesus are very true, but Jesus also said things that would disqualify him from being a good teacher. Things like in Luke 10, where Jesus says, you know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Oh, wait, what? No, like, just nice teachers don't say things like that. I saw, I was there. I witnessed it. I saw it. I saw Satan fall from light, like lightning from heaven. Jesus said things like, Philip says, show us the Father in John 14. And Jesus says, if you've, if you've seen me, you've seen God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. That's what in, insane people say. 
unless their claims are true. So what Paul is doing here at the beginning of this letter to the Colossians, he's going, hold on a minute. You're being swept up into some philosophical ideas, which I'm actually going to get into next week because they're in chapter 2. But Paul's like, hold on a minute. We have to go back and pin your faith to something. Why should you believe in any of this? Why, do, why am I saying Christ is preeminent? So he goes back, and that's why he's talking about the blood of the cross. He's talking about this man, Jesus. And so it's not just your ideas versus my ideas. He's saying Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe. And uh, he's going to reconcile all things. But, you know, like my table there at high school with the different ideas around it, a lot of people say, well, um, truth is like, you know, it's like an elephant. Well, kind of a part of it. The Christians have a piece and the Hindus have a piece and the Muslims have a piece and the atheists have a piece. And whatever. Or, you know, there's just, there's truth is out there, but you can't really know it. And that's, you can't be that exclusive to say, you know, Jesus said he was God and he rose from the dead and he's God. That's so exclusive, we can't say that. But there's a great irony in the idea of saying everybody has a part of truth. And the great irony is this. The person who says that is claiming that they have absolute truth. Because they're the ones that see the elephant, right? So they're patting us on the head and saying, you can't say that this is exclusively true because there's all these truths. And the only reason they're saying this is because they're, they're, they're claiming the same thing that they're criticizing. And... Uh, so there's this great irony in it. And not only that, but because even if, even if we say, hey, you can't say that that's absolutely true, all of us in here, regardless of our worldview, even if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you haven't placed your faith in Christ, and you are searching and seeking and you're wondering, you're still living according to your ideology, whatever your ideology may be, you're still living like it is absolutely true. I mean, you can't live any other way. So everybody is living, everybody, regardless of their worldview, regardless of their faith, everybody is living according to what in their mind is exclusively true, because that's just how we operate. Um, but the problem with that, of course, is that we can't, we can't then criticize the other one. For example, um, Nishi wrote a book called Beyond Good and Evil, and I read an article on it, and essentially what his premise is is to say, all truth claims are power grabs. Now, if you just claim that there's truth, Paul here is saying Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's exclusive. Paul is being exclusively true. And Nishi would look back on that and say, no, 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 that's just a power grab. If you make an exclusive claim, it's a power grab. But ironically, if Nishi's right, then everything he's saying is a power grab. So why should we believe it? Or another example would be Freud, who wrote a book called Totem and Taboo, and same thing as you, as you kind of, I mean, I haven't studied Freud or anything like that, so I'm not trying to, for those of you who have, uh, who study um, psychology, and these psychologists, I'm not trying to presume to be something I'm not. But when you look at guys who have the idea that, you know, hey, God is just a psychological projection, and that was Freud's deal, right? So Freud would say, God was just a psychological projection of how you dealt with your own insecurity, right? He's not the only one that said that, but he was one of them. So here's Paul showing up and saying to Colossus, guys, Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He's God. And Freud would look back on that and say, well, you know what? You're just, you've got this projection of God because that's your way of dealing with life. I mean, it's just a cycle. It's a, it's a projection to deal with your insecurity. But if that's true, then everything Freud is saying about God is his own insecurity and his own psychological projection of how he's dealing with life. Do you see how this all kind of unravels? An evolutionary scientist will say something like, along the lines of saying, okay, well, the belief in God makes us loving and good people. That helps the species in a beneficial way. 
but God isn't actually real or true, so you can't trust your reasoning faculties that would tell you that God is true. It's just helped the species survive. Okay, but if that's true, then that means your ideas about there not being a God is just your way of somehow benefiting yourself and enabling, you know, your sector of the species survive. Do you see this? So Paul is immediately coming out with something very exclusive. But the beautiful thing about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ is that Christianity is not just an exclusive message saying, hey, Jesus is God, but it is an inclusive message because anyone and everyone can place their faith in Christ alone. Jesus doesn't say, I save these kinds of people. If you match up with this kind of criteria, I will give you my grace and my love. The scriptures say over and over and over, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All of, the, all of us who uh, name the name of Christ can be called children of God. All of us who place our faith in Christ can, be, can call to him as Abba Father and we're adopted. So the exclusivity of Jesus seems very narrow, but it's actually incredibly broad because anyone from any uh, worldview, from any background, no matter who you are or what you've done, the scriptures say, by placing your faith in Christ alone, that his grace is extended to you, which makes it very exclusive, as a, uh, which makes it very inclusive. And so Paul gives us, Paul begins right with this like launching language about the, about the uh, preeminence of Christ and about this. And so for us as a church in a city that's pluralistic, lots of different worldviews, lots of different belief systems, how do we engage in a city like this? Well, the answer is we can be an outward-facing church and a loving church because we can love, love and give dignity to those that don't share our convictions. Most people, their concern is, well, if you say that Jesus Christ is God and you say that Jesus Christ is the only way, I mean, that's so narrow, isn't that going to make you prideful and make you a bigot? Well, it would make you a prideful bigot if you thought that the way that you came to faith in Christ alone was because of something in you. But that text that we just read said that Jesus did a whole lot of things that had absolutely nothing to do with you. Had everything to do with his grace. And so now the way that we relate in the city as those who say, yeah, I do believe in Christ alone and Christ is the only way to God and Christ is ultimately our hope and the one that fulfills our hearts and yet be a very humble and loving person is to know none of us are here because we deserved any of that. And so we can, with great confidence and humility, love those that don't share any of our, of our views. So Paul begins there. He's not like, my ideas versus yours. It goes back to the cross. Hey, something happened in world history, guys. We should probably take a look at that. Verse 13, he uses this word delivered. And it's past tense, completed. He says you've been delivered. In Christ, justified, declared righteous, right? Which means your failures this last week that you had, and the failures you're going to have this week, in your thoughts, your words, and your deeds, are not disqualifying your deliverance. You look at the word, delivered, past tense, done, completed. Delivered, completed, not delivered, conditional. So Paul's wanting to recalibrate the church back into where their true hope is. Notice that the words that he uses, he says, you've been delivered from what? From this dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God. So Paul uses these, these words, notice them, What have I been delivered from? You've been delivered from one dominion to another one. This dominion to the kingdom. What's the significance of that? Because if I was under one dominion and now I'm under another dominion, that means I'm not actually my own. That means there's only two options here. 
It means that I'm, I'm a, a child of God or I'm not a child of God. But I'm certainly not my own king. I'm going to be somebody's king. So Paul uses this language to say, hey, you've been delivered and you've been brought into this kingdom. And I'm not just going to use flowery language. Paul's not like, uh-oh, the church in Coloss is starting to you know, adopt these other kind of philosophical ideas of where their hearts can be fulfilled. So maybe I'll use really big language and I'll call Jesus a king. Because if I say kingdom and king and preeminent, you know, that just sounds really big. He's not just using, he's not just using flowery language. He's, he's saying, you know, there was this cross. And three days later, the guy who died on that cross came out of a tomb. And Rome, who incidentally was totalitarian for a thousand years, by the way, who was very good at getting done what they wanted to be done, you know, who didn't fall asleep at the switch, is now running around saying the tomb was empty and coming up for a reason why this tomb was empty. And Paul's looking back on that and going, if that happened and that's true, this Jesus is preeminent. If, if that happened and that's true, then, then this Jesus is the king. He's who he said he was. We've been delivered into his kingdom. And now our lives are in his capable hands. And all of this is, Paul is pinning all of this to history. When, uh, when Paul was talking about what happened at the, resurrection, uh, at the death and resurrection of Christ in Acts 26, he, Paul appeared before uh, Porcius Festus, who was a leader at the time. And Paul said to him, hey, these things didn't happen in a corner. Paul's pointing back to the history. Pointing back to history to say this thing happened. And Festus sent Paul to go under trial under Nero. This is all world history. The Christian faith, and the reason why Jesus is a big deal, and the reason why we say, well, we don't just go to Jesus for forgiveness, but then really ultimately we have to go and chase all these little things so that our hearts can, you know, be fulfilled and we can kind of make it through life and be happy. The reason why we can always go back to the worship and the rest of Christ and gather for worship and receive and go to prayer and go to, go to the scriptures and allow them to wash over our hearts is because Jesus is who he said he was. And there's great rest and great power in there. Verse 14 says that we're given redemption, this forgiveness of sins. Redemption means that your debt is paid. Redemption means you're not, you don't pay for what Christ paid for. We're all human. We're all made of dirt. We're all going back there. Judgment Day is coming. But for the Christian, Judgment Day already happened. See, for us, whose faith is in Christ and the one who raised from the dead, we've already received our pardon. And once God pardons a man, once God pardons a woman, once God pardons a child, there's no end to that pardon. So we've been redeemed. We've we've got this great redemption. And so the good news in all of this is that Judgment Day happened because Christ already paid the price for our sin. He's already done it. He's already, he's already risen from the grave. And Paul is appealing back to that. He's got, to pin it, he's got to pin it on the ground. Verse 15, Paul says that Jesus was the image of God, right? In other words, if he's the image of God, he perfectly interprets God. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how God feels about you, you look at the cross. Jesus perfectly interprets God. And so Paul calls him the image of God and the firstborn of all creation. Not the firstborn because God created Jesus. That's weird. He calls him the firstborn of all creation. And the word in the Greek is prototokos. Firstborn, prototokos, which means the first of all to follow. 
Which means if Jesus is the first and you're following after Jesus, that means we get to look at Jesus and go, okay, if Jesus is the firstborn, if he's the prototokos, and all of us are following after him, that means the pattern of what, what happened to Jesus is the pattern of my life. Which is good news. Because Jesus' suffering ended in glory. Which means my suffering, your suffering, ends in glory. Jesus, the end of Jesus' life, the, the, there was no end to Jesus' life, I'm sorry. The, the, the story of the end of Christ's uh, life on earth was not death. Resurrection. Well, if he's the prototokos, and we're all looking to him as hope, which of course, if he didn't raise from the dead, none of this matters, and we're all wasting our time on Sunday morning, and you may as well find something else you know, better to do with your time from 10.30 to 11.30. But if he raised from dead... And those of us who are made of dirt, who are one day returning there, this is a pretty significant message because now we look to him and we say, well, now as the prototokos, I'm now following that pattern. Which means the story, the end of your life and mine is not death and darkness, but life and light in God. Means that there is a restoration that's happening, which is why Paul uses this language. So there's a trajectory that we're on, right? And so he says he's the image of God. He perfectly interprets God. Right now in Toronto... If you go to Mervish Theater, Phantom of the Opera is playing. Fantastic opera written by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Susan and I got to see it years ago. It's fantastic. And Christine and the Phantom are there on the stage, and they don't know Andrew Lloyd Webber because they're creations of Andrew Lloyd Webber. And the only way they could possibly know Andrew Lloyd Webber was if Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote himself into the, the script. So this... The, Jesus Christ coming and living the perfect life we should have lived and didn't and dying and rising again in human history is the almighty God that we can't really, I mean, how do you really think about God? He's so big, it's so abstract. He writes himself into the script. He writes himself in so that we, his creation, can know him. So we have this great confidence, right, students, those of you that go on campus and you're surrounded by intellectuals to be a Christian and to adhere to Christian faith is not an abandonment of being intellectual. Because Christian faith actually engages our intellect. It ministers to both the head and the heart. And we look back and we say, not only is my heart full of hope because Christ the Prototokos has gone on a trajectory that I now know that I'm following. So that's good news for me. So that's good for my heart. But also it stimulates my mind because I'm recognizing that, hold on, if the great questions of the cosmos that the science department and the and the physics department are you know dealing with the most complicated mathematics which is not moving rocks around and add, adding and subtraction on the ground but the most complicated mathematics down the street at the university is is the mathematics of the stars and of the sky and if the if the answers to the unquestionables there are this god of the cosmos that we can't really wrap our heads around god comes in jesus christ to say if you've seen me you've seen him and so we've got this great and beautiful picture of God writing himself into human history, the image of God. And it contradicted the philosophy that was happening at the time at Colossus, which I'll get more into next week. Because the philosophy of the Greco-Roman world was, the material doesn't matter, we've got to get out of here. The physical is, oh, it's so fl- we just got to leave. The Christian faith is not, it, Christian faith doesn't say matter doesn't matter. Christian faith says grace is, protect, is, is perfecting the physical. Everything about Jesus, as the firstborn of all creation, as the prototokos, as the one who God says, here's Jesus who ri- rises again and he's glorified. And when Christ rises from the dead, he's not just an apparition, you know, floating around this kind of ethereal 
you know, space glob, and everybody's kind of like, ooh. Right? He, there he was, his glorified body. And we look at that and we say, well, if this, is an, if this is the image of God, and this is a picture of where all history is going, then matter matters. And that means that everything that we enjoy about this planet Earth, which is beautiful and good, because God created it, is going to be perfectly restored. And everything about this Earth that is horrifying and, and, and terribly uh, tragic is being eradicated and removed. The things that you enjoy about health and life here on planet Earth, God is restoring to you. Everything that is tragic about sickness, disease, and death is being removed. Christ is the image, the firstborn. He's the picture of where everything is headed. And Paul goes back because he's like, you're getting, side, you're getting sidelined by philosophy, so I want to speak philosophically and say to you, the answer for everything you're actually looking for is found in the one who rose from, from the grave. So he goes back to that, and he, pit, and he, and he, and he pins uh, our hope to that, which is good news, because I've said this before. When I was a kid in church, the way they always talked about heaven was it's like, we're all going to be out of here one day. You know, we're just, this whole thing's going to just blow up, and we're going to be gone. We're going to be floating around in diapers, playing harps. It's going to be fantastic. Kids, oh, heaven's going to be so great. It's just going to be like being in church all the time. And I'm like, what? No. It isn't going to be like being in church all the time because, number one, you're not going to need faith, and number two, you're not going to need hope, and number three, you're not going to need peace because you're going to actually be living in the reality of everything that right now that we're hoping for, which means I'm going to be unemployed in the resurrection. I don't know what my job will be exactly. I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be fantastic, but you're not going to need a preacher trying to curve you outward and upward and, give, and, and preach the gospel into your hearts because you're going to be enjoying life with God as he intended from the beginning. The restoration of all things. Christian hope, Christian faith, philosophically, Christianity is restoration, not evacuation. So Paul starts here, and he says, hey, he's the image of God. He's the firstborn. He's the prototokos. There's a trajectory. Verse 16, Paul says, we were created by him, through him, and for him. You see that? By him, through him, for him. It's amazing, which is why he's touching on things. Our sense of origin. Where did we come from? Deep sense of purpose and identity. Where are we going? The one who is the great architect of the soul is the one who ultimately fulfills the soul. Look at verse 17. In verse 17 he says, Jesus Christ is the one who is holding all things together by a word of his power. Jesus Christ, this man, he's 100% God and 100% man, which we'll get to in a second. But he's holding all things together by a word of his power. Paul's talking this way. He says he's preeminent, which means he's superior in every way. What's Paul trying to do? Because this little house church in Colossus is kind of getting sidetracked. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe we go to Jesus for forgiveness. But like to get a sense of like, are we okay? And what's going to happen? And life is hard under Rome. Rome is scary. The economy was scary. Their health was scary. Sounds like today, doesn't it? <laughs> the, the government was scary. Okay, so Paul's trying to infuse hope into their hearts. And he says, Christ is preeminent. He's the one holding together the universe by a word of his power. If this piece of paper that my sermon is written on, if the thickness of this paper represents the distance from here to the sun, then the distance to the nearest star is a stack that's probably like twice the height of this gym here. And Jesus is holding all things together by a word of his power. And yet that transcendent God that we can't really wrap our minds around that, he came in a, in a form that we can completely grasp. Because he came as us, right? Well, let me ask you a question. 
if Jesus is who Paul says he is, is that the kind of person that you just kind of invite into your life to kind of help you along every once in a while? Is he like your assistant? Or is, a person, or, or is that the kind of person you trust in? And you, you, you just put all your hope in? And you find great rest in? And you worship? And you give your life to? Because if he is actually the one who rose from the dead, if he is the prototokos of all things to come, and if he is the one holding the universe together with the word of his power, and yet he somehow mysteriously loves us and gives his grace to us, and then he's going to restore us, and he's going to resurrect us, and we're going to enjoy life with him, then that is one that we don't just go to for forgiveness and then go to tiny little things that rust and break apart for hope and fulfillment. That's the one we go to for forgiveness, and that's the one we go to for fulfillment. Which transforms the way we think about coming to God entirely. You know, there's a um, sociologist in Notre Dame, and his name, is, uh, his name is Christian Smith. And he says that the working religion in North America today is something called moralistic therapeutic deism. Which is a fancy way of saying, most people think about religion like, be a good person, do good things, and God will owe you a good life. I mean, that's just what most, it's, most people think about. Christians just have a Christian karma. Most, not all, but many. In our country, in this country, wouldn't it be amazing if you could just go um, on a road trip with your family and no matter what little town or village or city that you landed in, you could find a church and they, you, they would get up and Christ alone would be preached into your souls. Wouldn't that be amazing? Is that the, the situation in Canada today? It isn't. Now, Make no mistake, I'm not standing up here in arrogance, you know, saying, I'm the only one. I'm not the only one. There's scores of people in Canada that are, that are preaching Jesus. But what I'm saying is, on a national scope, most people think that religion is be a good person, do good things, and God owes you a good life. And if the Christians shrink the Christian faith down from the preeminent Jesus, the Prototokos, who gives us hope for all things to come, then every time the Christian suffers, they're confused. They're freaked out. They're like, what's happening? What levers do I need to pull? What buttons should I be pushing? Because I thought the whole point of this was that God was, I'm uh, God, I'm being good. You're supposed to give me a good life. The doctor just called me and said I have a disease. The boss just called and said I lost my job. I mean, when things happen, and the the Christian that abandoned Christian faith and shrunk down to hope these little things, they just spiral. But what does the text give us? God isn't created for us. We are created by him, through him, for him. And the good news is, because judgment day already happened for us, and because essentially death in its, in, in the, in its uh, uh, final doom already happened for us, there is nothing that can happen in your life now that robs you of your ultimate hope. There is no phone call from a doctor that can, even though in the temporary, in the moment, it is devastating, it cannot ultimately devastate you. There's nothing that could happen economically. There's nothing that could happen in your family. There's nothing that could, that, that could happen politically that could ultimately and forever just cause your heart to cave because your life is in the hands of the preeminent one who is holding the universe together with the word of his power and he rose from death and you are loved with a love that is so strong death itself won't hold you. That's where Paul starts Colossians. He's like, hold on a second. You don't go to Jesus for forgiveness and go to stupid little mini-messiahs for fulfillment. That is unwise, church. That's what Paul does with Colossians, and that's why he goes here and goes there. Because how, how many of you have had people in your life and they drain you? They drain you because they're constantly taking from you, right? 
All of us have been that person. All of us have been needy and all of us have been takers, right? We've all been that. But if there's a person that just lives in a perpetual state of neediness and they're like, I'm not going to give anything to you. I'm just going to take from you. It's draining. And you know, when you lose the sight of the preeminent Jesus, you think of God as needy. God needs me to come to church. God needs me to read the Bible. God needs me to pray. God needs me to teach my children the word so that... And we think that God is like this cosmic, needy person. You know, for like you, you comic book nerds, who's like Thanos, just like sitting on a throne, sitting all the time, sitting. What? That is not God. He's not needy. He's trying to fulfill and restore, and rejuvenate, and breathe life into your hearts. He calls you to worship on Sunday because he's wanting to breathe oxygen into your soul and fulfill you so that the pressures and the things that you have to deal with when you leave this place on Monday, they're not gone. They, don't, they might not change, but you change. He's a fulfiller. This is who he is. He's preeminent. This is the Christ of the universe. And he sustains us. And the church is getting sidelined by philosophical soul food that's really junk food. And Paul's like, whoa, don't get sidelined by the junk food. That will not fulfill you. And when we, we go on trips together, Susan will, because Susan is a foodie and she likes good food, so she'll pack food. And she's like, you know, oh, okay, I want fresh vegetables and fresh this and meats and cheeses. And she's like, yeah. And she gets excited. She puts all her little, little matchy-match food in the cooler. And she's like, yeah, she's excited about it. I have the taste buds of a 10-year-old. So even though that's... I'm fine with like pulling over like, hey, and Nigel could be like, let's go to McDonald's. And I was like, oh, that, that food is garbage. I'm like, all right, let's do it. And I'll do it. And I'll be driving along the highway and an hour later, Susan's totally content because she bit down on something of substance. And an hour later, I'm like, you know, I could go for another Big Mac, large fries. Because it doesn't fulfill. And the church in Coloss is being sidelined by philosophical junk food. And Paul goes, hold on a minute. That is not going to fulfill your heart. It is not going to fulfill your soul. I need to recalibrate you to the one who's transcendent and preeminent where you can put your true hope in. And I'm going to close with this. He says that in verses 21 through 22, he says, We used to be alienated and hostile, but now we're reconciled, holy, and blameless. This is Paul unpacking the implications of God's law and God's gospel using strong, contrasting language. When you look at these verses together, he's saying God's law diagnosed you as alienated from God without Christ. So God's gospel delivers you and declares that you're reconciled to God because of Christ. God's law diagnoses you as evil in comparison to his perfect son. But then God's gospel delivers you and declares that you're holy and blameless because of his perfect son. And so he calls the church in Colossus and he calls all of us by extension to rest in this world that is writhing in unrest by trusting in Christ because the great architect of our soul is the only one who can ultimately fulfill our soul. And because of the love and the grace of God, you are invited in your times of unrest and distress to turn upward to the one who holds the universe together with the word of his power, who is also holding your life in his capable hands. Jesus is the one who forgives. Jesus is the one who fulfills. Christ alone, let's pray.